welcome to our listeners as we continue to explore the many and varied implications of the COVID-19 crisis on our economy and society. I'm C2 CEO Melinda Salento and thank you for joining us for this podcast. Joining me for a discussion on the impacts and implications of the current crisis and also a bit of a perspective on where we were pre-crisis in the arts sector is Kim Williams. Uh, he is chair of the Copyright Agency, but of course the breadth and depth of Kim's contribution to the arts and creative industry sector in Australia in both executive and non-executive boards is uh, roles is very, very broad. Um, Kim, I've got here as a list the Australian Film Finance Commission, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, the Sydney Opera House Trust, Fox Studios, Australia Film Commission, the ABC, Music of Viva, and so on. <laughs> so well qualified to join us for this conversation and thank you for that. It's a pleasure to be with you, Melinda. Um, why don't we start off by just um, maybe going back to something that you wrote recently, which was focusing on the collapse of our creative community uh, in Australia, which you described as being without precedent and also um, flagged as predating the impact of COVID-19. So maybe you can outline um, how you see the sector at the moment and why Australian storytelling and investment in the arts and our cultural institutions is, is so important to you and to the country. Well, I think investment in, in the creative and intellectual life of the nation is actually fundamental to the nation's confidence, to its resilience and to its character. Uh, in fact, I think all of those things are a product of a nation's, the quality of a nation's storytelling and of its creative capability and of its imaginative originality. Um, without these things, um, I think we, we, we lack real national confidence and the capacity to chart a, a destiny for a nation that is actually more than meat and potatoes. So I, I personally think that a sense of self and a sense of place are firmly rooted in the nation's imagination and the nation's creativity. And these are things that in many instances, particularly in an, an economy that is in a relative sense smaller than the, the big speaking economies, um, is, is, is really dependent on the quality of public investment in, in, in building um, the creative capability of the nation. And with, without that kind of investment, I think that the nation will gradually um, be a laggard in relation to the capacity to innovate, the capacity to um, confidently invest in things that it needs to invest in in, in terms of risk-taking, and it will lose its capacity to be empathetic and increasingly lose its capacity to be independent. Um, and I, I think often people forget that an English-speaking nation is either magnificently advantaged or crippled by virtue of the fact that it speaks English and therefore will be suborned to much larger and more powerful English-speaking nations like the United States or, or, um, or the UK. And unless we actually develop our creative capacity and our, our, our storytelling and invest in our, in, in, in our creative and intellectual communities, 
um, we will fall behind. We will fall very, very, very fast and very far behind because all of the most talented people in our country will go elsewhere. It's, um, it's a really interesting perspective. And I think, you know, one of the things that I was reflecting on um, in the lead up to even knowing we were going to be having this conversation is um, the important role that arts can play. And here I'm, you know, I'm thinking of the theatre, for example, in, in enabling a, a community and a country to explore a range of different perspectives and sometimes in quite a confrontational way but still within the confines of it being loosely entertainment or do you know what I mean? And it, you, can, you can have conversations that come through the arts sector in a way that I think allow a community to challenge itself and to question itself in a way that if you're having it in direct public discourse can be uh, more confrontational and harder to progress. And I, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely true, Melinda. And I, I think you see it at its best often in theatre where you, you think of a production like the that was was um, given to Sydney last year of um, Ruth Park's The Harp in the South, which was, was created for the, um, the Sydney Theatre Company and which, which clearly looked to a different Australia and made one reflect upon many elements of community that were so different then from now, but also made one aware of how far Australia had travelled from that time to the present in terms of its economic well-being and in, in terms of the whole change in the basis of relationships between people. Um, I think moments like that are, are pivotally important in terms of Australians really thinking about themselves and thinking about what matters. And um, you only get it from the arts. Um, in a similar way, you, 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 you get it from great exhibitions and the way exhibitions confront you in terms of the kind of memory of a society and then an to that in the way they produce their work. Or you get it in terms of, 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 of great music and the way great music ignites a kind of collective emotional power that can, can, can move a group of people to make them feel better and different. Um, these things are often ineffable. Regrettably, in the nature of life now, everything gets brought back to monetary measures, which I think is a, a very tragic comment on our society, that we treat money as the, as the measure of value in all things rather than being many measures of value. Um, but um, And one is constantly having to, to, um, to defend the arts in terms of, of monetarist terms rather than to defend it in terms of all of these other benefits that are so fundamental to a sense of national ethos, a sense of national aspiration, and a sense of, of really looking to the quality of our society. Um. And so, Kim, where do you, where do you think we were um, pre this this crisis? And I mean, you know, the, the devastating impact on not being able to have audiences. Essentially, we, we can talk about that in a minute. But I am interested in what you think the starting off point um, or the trajectory for our support for the arts and investment in the arts was before this terrible crisis? Well, funding, serious funding of the arts in Australia is really only a phenomenon of the last half century. And um, we, we, we have seen the fortunes of the creative community wax and wane in that time. Um, over the last 10 to 15 years, 
it's been much, much harder because governments, particularly the national government, has been underinvesting. In real terms, uh, funding to the, um, the creative community in terms of writers, composers, visual artists, performing arts companies um, and the like has declined in real terms by 20% in the last 10 years alone. Now, there, there aren't many areas of life where people would tolerate um, a, a decline of that magnitude um, without actually saying, what's wrong here? What's happening? But in the, in the arts, um, I'm afraid that it's seen as being a nice-to-have, not a, not a must-have in, um, in the public policy priority box. And that, I think, is going to pay Australia back very severely in the, in the coming years. That position is now, of course, compounded by the fact that the, the, the actual energy plug has been pulled from the arts community with everything being shut, um, so that we've had something like, well, certainly $100 million just removed from the, um, the landscape because many of Australia's companies derive the majority of their income, the majority of the thing, of the, of the rich life, life force that, um, that empowers them from the box office. So when the box office is shut, everything goes to custard. Uh, that's well. That's obviously right, and I think even for um, those organisations um, that have managed to diversify revenue away from the box office a little bit, um, it's tended to be supplemented, as far as I'm aware, by um, you know looking for so-called unearned income or philanthropic donations or support for. Um, the evolution of a new program of work. And of course, often that comes, as I said, either from philanthropic trusts or from the business community. Um, and certainly the latter is, you know, is going to have, um, I think, less capacity to provide support for the arts as well. Um, so it is, it is quite a, a fraught set of circumstances. Oh, it, the, the, the problem is, is, is a genuine wicked problem in the, the combined impact of no box office um, already um, survival rations in, in government funding um, will be further compounded in terms of severe erosion philanthropy. I mean, many people, of course, have suffered very, very severe penalties in, in their own personal settings in terms of their investments. And, um, and therefore, it is inevitable that the amount of public largesse that um, many arts companies have enjoyed from individuals and from companies um, will be reduced. So do you think that there's um, some potential to, to look at um, some return to vibrancy or a rebuild based on um, stronger like what you might call a domestic tourism-led sort of recovery. I know one of the things that um, people are sort of reflecting on is that Australians are great travellers. Of course, we'd love to go to the great capitals of Europe and visit their art galleries and, you know, partake of the opera in a way that we wouldn't in our own domestic economy and environment. Um, do you think there's a capacity to sort of, 
use of you know the 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 rebound out of this um crisis and the the, the fact that people have been in isolation they'll be looking for things to do can, can we reignite enthusiasm and passion for the arts in the australian community and what what's critical to, to achieve? Well, we, we already have unusually high attendance levels for arts activities in australia many of australia's professional performing arts companies have amongst the um, highest attendance um, levels for their offerings um, in comparison with, with, with anywhere else in the world. Um, we have the highest ratio of dependence on box office with the mainstream companies in the world. Um, the only companies that, that derive more of their revenue from box office are in, are in North America, um, and specifically in the United States. But the level of public funding to privately earned income through the box office is, is much higher in Germany or France or Italy or the, the UK or Canada. Um, here, companies have a very, very high dependency already on generating revenues from, from what they do. Now, that's a good and a bad thing. It tends to, to make innovation and, and more dangerous work more difficult because um, if, it, if it doesn't actually work with the public, um, you pay a very big economic price. Um, the funding in this country is is getting to a level where it, where it is in fact derisory. I mean, look at the look at the responses of governments to the COVID nineteen crisis. In Germany, they immediately invested an additional one and a half billion Australian dollars in the performing arts. In Britain, they they invested an immediate five hundred million Australian dollars to underpin the performing arts companies. In Canada, they invested $600 million, not just in, in um, performing arts and, and, and museums, but also in sport, um, in order to make sure that all of these activities, which are, are precious parts of Canadian life, would continue. Australia's government has given $27 million. It's not acceptable. It, it, it actually is a position that has moved from being one of, if we're kind, and describe it as benign neglect to actually being one of aggressive neglect. If we, one of the things that we're um, focusing on at CEDA is, and I think we're not alone in this, is that in thinking about recovery, I mean, the magnitude of this crisis has just been so profound that I think everyone now accepts that there is going to have to be a serious rethink across so many different aspects of, uh, of our economy and society and the sorts of public policy frameworks, we have the sorts of public investments that we make. And I think everyone is, you know, similarly focused on how we, how we in our language, CEDA's language, come back better. Um, you know, you've talked previously, written previously about, you know, the legacy of big investments, for example, under the Whitlam government um, in so many of our primary cultural institutions. What does, what does coming back better for, um, the art sector and in terms of our cultural institutions, what does that look like from your perspective? Well, well there has to be a, a reversion to looking to the amount that is required to maintain minimum basic viability for um, a diversity of, of creative activity in the, in the theatre, in music, in dance, in the visual arts, um, and in the, a, a very primary source of of, of national being, and that is in our writing. Um, 
the, the, the investment in Australian writing, it will surprise you to learn, is at the same level that it was 30 years ago. I mean, I, I, I stand back in disbelief when I look at what has happened to the funding for playwrights, poets, novelists, historians and other non-fiction writers, um, children's literature, all of these things that are that are a part of the fabric of being Australian, of actually giving you a sense of what it is to be Australian as, as compared with being a New Zealander or a Canadian or an American or, a, or someone from Britain, let alone someone from a non-English speaking nation. Because of course, non-English speaking nations have certain natural protections to their sense of self and their sense of place because of the very languages that they speak. If you're in Norway, you read Norwegian and, and you, you have Norwegian writers who actually write for you and give you a sense of where you are and what you are. And the same is true of every European jurisdiction. The same is true throughout Africa. The same is true through South America. And of course, we're all familiar through translation with many of the great minds of those places that have so imbued us with a sense of wonder at these different societies and their sense of aspiration. I mean, how can you think of South America and not think of Gabriel Garcia Marquez? I mean, he is so fundamental to the, to the sense of the, of the collective imagination we have about South America or someone like Borges or someone like Pablo Neruda. We don't, have the same kind of spirit or, or, or protection without public investment in these things. So we have to look, we have to, look to that yeah, public resourcing. Second, we, we need to create a, a, yeah. an armory of tools that encourage people to invest in, in, in this activity and, and, and encourage people to, to see it as being a, a part and parcel of having a good society. Um, and at the moment, I, I think we have a long way to go to make that sense of personal personal commitment to commissioning new work, to supporting artists, to supporting things that are that that are that are not about our our, our basic goods and chattels in life, but are actually about higher things that are that are very very central to the sense of of value in a society. It's um, the, the comments you're making about language. I have to say, Kim, I, I was. You took me off on a little bit of a tangent in my own mind because I have a, a bit to do with um, issues of reconciliation and um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and identity. And, of course, one of the things that sits right at the heart of that is, um, you know, is the importance of language and the cost yes. of language lost. And so I, the, the points that you make there around um, the, the support that you get or, or don't get from you know as a result of having a, a language difference is I think is a really interesting one. I think the other point that sits beneath so many of the comments that you are making, Kim, is that uh, you know we've got a, a sector that's been underfunded and and um, you know the numbers that you're quoting, my mind went immediately to the fact that you know for so many people involved in in the arts and our cultural institutions, this is really um, all about their passion and no doubt that they are um, supplementing their own um, financial resources through other forms of employment, which of course have all now. Um, Tragically, that's true. Well. 
Um, what, what you what you say about the tragedy so, of Indigenous language in Australia is is something I think that we, we all, as as citizens of this nation, need to be very concerned about. Yeah, I think we're, uh, I'm certainly a, a big supporter of doing all that we can to, um, you know, to to put some investment into that space and to to rebuild knowledge and language where, wherever possible. Um, Kim, I'm interested in. You know, sitting beneath this, I think, is a really big question about the challenge around um, changing the public uh, conversation around the importance of the of um, the arts and cultural sectors and you know, how integral they are to our, our national identity and rethinking about how you measure and talk about a return on public investments in terms of the broader benefits and the non-financial benefits and, and the strength um, and cohesion, if you like, of, of society. How do you think we go about changing that conversation? And, and do you think, again, maybe trying to look a bit too much for glass half full here, but we, we've, you know, after periods of great dislocation, you can look for, for reigniting different conversations that perhaps you wouldn't have been able to. So is there, is there a moment here where we can, we can remind people of the importance of these and the role of community and society and, and the exchanges that sit around arts and culture? Look, I'll, I'll actually try and deal with it first in terms of, of the role of CEDAR and the, and the way in which it's about the economic development of Australia and how we give better purpose and resilience to that, that, that sense of, of um, a set of national settings. All said and done, Australia has competitive advantage in very few things. We have competitive advantage in, in lots of aspects of agriculture. We've got a competitive advantage in aspects of, um, of mining engineering, where we're clearly a, a remarkable world leader, um, and in niche manufacturing, of, of often with very high-tech goods, but it's a relatively low, low employment agent. The real competitive advantage of Australia and the real thing that is going to look after us into the future are our people. And if we are not investing in their intellectual and creative capability, if we are not investing in giving them a sense of really advanced capacity in those areas, the nation will will, will steadily... Um, erode its living standards and decline because we have to become the inventive nation. We have to become a nation of innovators. And there is no society on the planet where economic success does not equate with great cultural confidence and terrific creative innovation and creative thinking. Nations that are economically successful have a dispersed literary culture. They have a dispersed music culture. They have a dispersed and active theatre culture. I mean, these things, when you stand back and think about it, are self-evident. And what Australia is doing is it's pulling the plug out from all of these things rather than doubling down on these investments. If you go back to the global financial mess, the first thing that Germany did at that time was to increase investment in all of the cultural products of the nation because they get it, they understand. Britain has done the same thing. 
Over the course of the last 15 years, the British have almost doubled the amount of money that they put into cultural endeavour because they know it is part of the toolkit to build a resilient, thoughtful, flexible, dynamic nation. It's something that will actually look after the nation long term. You have to invest in the minds of a nation in order to, to actually feed the tummies. Um, moving back into the more the more ethereal sense of, of, of creative and intellectual life, it, it gives people the sort of capacity to deal with problems like we're having today and to actually respond in a, in a very creatively resourceful fashion. Um, and the nation that I look to regularly in terms of that kind of capability and that kind of responsiveness is New Zealand. I don't know if you've compared the way in which New Zealand has managed COVID-19 as compared with Australia, but I would say that New Zealand has been copybook in terms of really innovative approaches to explaining the problem to the nation, preparing the nation for each aspect of public policy implementation of quite ferociously severe restrictions, but always done after a very careful positioning that was genuinely imaginative. You know, you look across the, the Tasman and you see a nation that has much less recourse to protectionism, much greater investment in creativity and intellectual um, activity, and has much better and much more innovative public policy. Um, these things are all inextricably aligned. And Australia could learn much from actually looking at its its sister nation across the, the Tasman much more um, much more carefully. Well, Kim, I think um, that's probably a, a pretty good position to finish our conversation today. I think the challenge that you've put to us at CEDAR is to reflect on, you know, the broader benefits of really investing in the creative in industries, particularly in the context of um, enabling a, a broader innovative effort, capacity and culture and it, it might interest you to know that we did a live stream event with um, Greg. Yes, Smith I know Greg. Here, I was a sparring partner with Greg Treasury. back in the in the and, 1980s over so film assistance. He's a very brilliant, very brilliant guy. I like <laughs> Greg a lot. Well, yeah, he's. But interestingly, he, you know, he, in terms of thinking about the forward recovery agenda and the sorts of things that we need to think about um, in the context of our economic development and shape more broadly, you know, he really emphasised. The fact that, that you know we 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 need to focus more on our creative sectors and and thinking about the role that they that they play. Um, so you've got support from what what some might think of as perhaps an unusual corner, but maybe not. <laughs> so I think a good challenge to us at Cedar to think about how we reflect on these and how as we continue to focus on economic development and what it means more broadly than that. I mean it's you know. The, the benefits that it brings in terms of um, social development, social cohesion, um, and broader well-being, of course, is the is the lens through which we look at that. But then, I guess, also a challenge to to look at the models of other countries and to learn from them, uh, rather than to always perhaps look for the reasons why we can't take up ideas from other countries or why we you know we can't look to emulate. Um, policies that are developed elsewhere. So um, I think a really good place to end our conversation and let me thank you for your time and your wonderful insights on it's a great what pleasure is, to talk I think, to a really you, important Melinda. issue for Australia. Pleasure. I hope that was the sort of thing you wanted. Thanks, Kim.